whether thou art a ghost that hath come from the earth, or a phantom of night that hath no hollow, or one that lieth dead in the desert, or a ghost unburied, or a demon, or a ghoul, whatever thou be until thou art removed, thou shalt find here no water to drink, thou shalt not stretch forth thy hand to our own, into our house enter thou not, through our fence break through thou not. We are protected, though we may be frightened. Our life you may not steal, though we may be scared to death. Welcome to Scared to Death, Creeps, Peepers, Roberts, and Annabelles. I'm Dan. I'm Lindsay. You're Lindsay. I was gonna, I was gonna chime in with Roberts, Annabelles, and Sleepy Pete's. I'm real sleepy, you guys. Lindsay, Lindsay's super sleepy. I don't um, know what is going on. I slept 15 hours yesterday. Yep, not normal. Not okay. <laughs> uh, two very quick announcements, and uh, and then I'll probably be waking Lindsay up. I know, uh, I know. Or telling uh, today's supposedly true paranormal horror stories uh, to yourself. To myself, that's fine. You know what? Not to uh, the creeps and peepers. You can take you can take a nap during my story. That'd be fine. Get uh, a little pillow. I got a blanket. <laughs> uh, the scared to death lockup collection now available for you to check out at badmagicmerch.com. No uh, graphic look this time. Way more subdued. Ooh. Classic monogram lockup of the show's letters features a unisex black palm beanie, uh, black and red three quarter baseball tee, and a choice of black or red regular tees. And very uh, cool collection for you to check out, especially if you want to wear some scared to death merch, but don't want you know images of monsters or demons and things on what you're wearing. Yeah. Not everybody's a graphic tea person like me. It's a pom-pom hat. It's a pom-pom hat? That's what I call it, like a pom-pom. Like, it's got like a fluffy ball. Oh, okay. Well, you said palm for a second. I was like, like, like the juice, like palm juice? Is it like I, pomegranate in color? <laughs> Logan gave me that description. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's what, maybe that's uh, his inside the biz, the merch biz lingo. Look at you, so cool. I'm just a parrot. Yeah. I'm just parroting what he wrote. <laughs> and you do love a graphic tea. <laughs> I do. If you, yesterday you didn't wear a graphic tea, and I was like, who, who? are you? Who is who, it? Who is this guy not wearing some random graphic t-shirt? I know I packed it as an undershirt and then I ran out of shirts, so I had to wear something without a graphic on it. One of us was happy about that. Okay. Uh, would you like to share some uh, uh, charity information? Yes, 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 yes. So I just uh, slurped in the mm -hmm. microphone. That was Got a lot fun. of stuff going on over there. I'm a mess. I'm a mess. It's fine. It's going to be fun for everyone else to watch me be a complete and utter mess. Uh, yes. Yeah, so this month, February's uh, charity, the amount to be determined, but this charity is SEO, Sponsors for Educational Opportunity. SEO's mission is to create a more equitable society by closing the opportunity gap for young people from historically excluded communities. SEO annually serves 6,000 plus people across America, across America through its various programs. Uh, the programs include SEO Scholars, an eight-year academic program that helps get public high school students to and through college with a 90% graduation rate. There's SEO Careers, which recruits, coaches, and trains undergraduates for summer internships, SEO Investments, which provides education, exposure, training, and mentorship uh, to professionals who have been long upper unrepresented in this area, and SEO Law provides uh, development and help for pre-law students with education, career, and summer internships at 45 partner firms. For more information, you can go to seo-usa.org. All right. It's a really cool... Charity. Yeah, yeah. We were talking about some options this morning, and yeah, that's a great pick. Yeah, I, I dig it. I think mm. they're doing some very cool stuff. 
Um, do you have any uh, stories for us today or, n- or no stories today? My story is going to be nothing but Z's, just lots of sleep. Mm, that's exciting. It is. Everyone's going to watch me take a nap. It would be really fun. I'll sleep on the, mm-hmm. the desk here. Yeah. And then you can like creep in and try and scare me. Okay. It's a new scared to death. I'm sure there's a market for that. I mean, people are selling, far- people are selling farts in jars. Which I did not know about mm-hmm. until you so, told me, which is disturbing on so many levels i know there's videos of people eating that people watch you know that's a thing where mm. youtube channels where just someone eats and then what? You, yeah you just get people fans of watching you eat so i'm sure there's a, a video channel out there where somebody just sleeps and my, my misophonia you said watch someone eat and my misophonia like my heart rate just went up to 1000 it was like <laughs> oh are they quiet when they do it what do they want to no, hear it's like asmr asmr like some people yeah. love hearing that what is mm-hmm. ASMR? Uh, it's like sound. It's just sounds of different things. Like there's <laughs> super intense sound of like little tiny noises. What? Mm-hmm. Do you like crinkling paper? No. Mm-hmm. And lip smacking? No. Yeah. Uh, Self pleasure. Mm-hmm. Just this, but the sound of that like for a long time, like half an hour, forty five minutes. Well, no one can even do it for that long, so it's clearly a loop. But okay. <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, okay. But I do have two actual scary stories. Okay. That are that are have nothing to do with ASMR. Okay. Which is its own kind of scare. Sure. I have a haunted basement. Kind of something mm-hmm. in a basement. What it is, we're going to find out. Maybe. All right. And then I have this awesome story, story, story in Colombia that I'm so into because it takes us to the era of Pablo Escobar. Okay. And like a very uh, interesting story about a police officer who sees something, and then that something seems to uh, want to have his attention still. Interesting. So we're go back to like the 80s for that one. Mm-hmm. The Medellin cartel. Medellin. Yes, that's exactly where we're going for mm. this story. All right. I'm into it. Uh, I have my standard two. One long one, one short one today. Uh, neither a ghost story, actually. Oh, well, what are you doing here? <laughs> the first, well, they're horror. They're paranormal horror. Oh, I see. First is about a man from England, Bill Ramsey, known in paranormal circles as the South End Werewolf. And I'll tell you the very strange short story of how he arrived at that moniker. And the second story is about a mysterious disappearance, the Kinross Incident. Haven't told one of those in a while. What happened to a U.S. fighter jet and the two men inside it over Lake Superior back on November 23rd, 1953? We so, haven't had a, you're right, a disappearance. And I forgot for a second how much that terrifies me. Mm-hmm, People yeah. just, whoop, the off un- they go. The unknowing. You ready to get started? Yeah, I'm scared. I want to show off my socks, though. Yeah, we got time to settle in. So the, that's perfect. These are particularly special socks. Now, not only are they fun socks for the show, mm-hmm. but it's like, I don't know who sent them, but it's like whoever sent them knows me because these are compression socks. And I am the weirdo on airplanes taking my socks and shoes off and putting on my compression socks. I like you added that you're the weirdo like on airplanes, like as if you're not a weirdo, not on airplanes. What? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that weird. You're very weird. I like it. But yeah, you're weird. Uh, (laughs) This is getting awkward. (laughs) This is Uh, so uncomfortable. I should leave and go take a nap. (laughs) Uh, Okay, you settle in with your compression socks. They're so great. I can feel my varicose veins going down as we speak. Okay. Uh, Here we go. Every once in a while, uh, I cover a story here on Scared to Death. I already uh, covered before on Time Suck, you know, my deep dive on One Topic a Week solo podcast, if you're new to this show and haven't heard of it. Uh, This is one of these stories. So, dear creeps and peepers, if you would like to hear about how Bill Ramsey may have suffered from an exceptionally rare and also maybe not even real form of mental illness, uh, the not universally accepted condition known as clinical lycanthropy, uh, an, a clinical, uh, an expression of schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or clinical depression involving the delusion of being an animal, usually a wolf, with correspondingly altered behavior, you want to listen to Times Like Episode 111, Demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. 
Uh, I touched on Bill's story there and dug more into the psychological side of what may have led to his behavior, as opposed to just laying out the paranormal aspects of his story, you know, which I'm, of course, doing today. Uh, interestingly, even when I took a more so-called reasonable, rational approach with this story with Time Suck, I will say I still found what happened to Bill very hard to explain. Hmm. Bill Ramsey is a man, or was a man, we actually don't know if he's still alive or not, mm. from South End on Sea, Essex, small city of around 180,000 people, roughly 40 miles east of London, where the River Thames dumps into the English Channel, who seemed to carry around some sort of dark passenger, to quote the series Dexter, uh, for many, many years. His story would become one of Ed and Lorraine Warren's most infamous cases from the 80s. There was a lot of speculation for a while that his story would be the focus of the Conjuring 3 film before it was revealed that Arnie Johnson's demonic possession story would take center stage in the movie called The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. And we actually covered Arnie's insane story back in episode five of Scared to Death, The Beast. Oh, yeah. Uh, most of the time, uh, before he disappeared from public view, Bill appeared to be a very normal and happy family man. But occasionally, he was anything but normal. From time to time, without warning, he'd become enraged and lash out in attacks that he claimed were brought on by some sort of curse or demonic infestation or possession. That's what he'd claim by the end. He claimed he would transform into a version of a monster long feared by many ancient peoples around the world before it became a staple of modern film, TV, horror fiction, and comic book and graphic novel lore. A werewolf. Numerous witnesses claimed to watch Bill fall into strange trances where his entire personality and demeanor would change. He'd become aggressive, violent, feel the urge to harm anyone near him, and possess what seemed to be superhuman strength. And then he'd claim afterwards that he had no memory of what had just transpired. Time now for the tale of the South End werewolf. William David Ramsey was born in South End on Sea, Essex, November 11th, your birthday, 1943. Much, much, much older than me. By his account and the corresponding accounts of those who knew him best growing up, he had a completely normal childhood. He grew up in a working class family with eight siblings. Like his siblings, he began working at a young age and was able to hold down a job while also doing well enough in school to pass his classes. Uh, Bill's teacher said that while he never seemed to fully dedicate himself to his studies, he was intelligent and curious. And if you were suffering from what Bill claimed he was suffering from as a child, you'd probably have a hard time fully dedicating yourself to your studies as well. Uh, Bill claimed his life changed forever when he was nine years old. He would tell Ed and Lorraine Warren that one day he'd just come home from the movies with some siblings and was playing outside in the backyard when he began to feel strange. He said he felt a coldness come over him, like an invisible ocean wave. It was a sunny day, but the sudden chill was shocking. He explained it further, stating... Have you ever walked into a meat locker right after you've been outside on a hot day? That's what this was like. I was playing and my body temperature was normal and then, well, I'd say it felt as if my body temperature dropped a good 20 degrees. Sweat froze on me and my whole body started shaking. It was, if, as, it was as if I'd opened this door and stepped inside to another dimension or something. And then there was this odor, very foul. The chill soon subsided, but Bill still felt different once he'd warmed back up, older somehow. And now new thoughts were running through his mind, visions of wolves. When his mother called his name to come inside the house, she snapped him out of his daze, and then he was filled with another new thought, the urge to harm her. He felt an unexplainable and unprovoked rage. Bill turned around when his mother called out for him, and he tripped. When he stood back up, he was blind with anger, started growling while glaring at her. A surge of strength now allowed him to uproot a fence post, and he started swinging it around menacingly like a club. 
His mom cried out for help. Bill's father ran outside, shouted at him to put the post down. When Bill refused, his dad moved to grab it. Bill pulled away from him, put some of the wire fence meshing attached to the post into his mouth, started gnawing on it. His dad grabbed the post, tried to pull it away from his small nine-year-old son, but couldn't. His boy was now alarmingly, shockingly strong. Bill's mom now started to cry, and luckily the sounds of his mother crying seemed to snap Bill out of whatever fugue state he'd fallen in. When he came to, young Bill's hands and mouth were bloody and torn. When his parents asked Bill to try and explain what happened, another fit of rage overtook him. Again, he started growling like a wild animal. His mother was so terrified she ran inside, locked the door. His dad stayed outside, tried to talk him down. Soon he did. Then little Bill completely returned to his normal self. Whatever had taken over him had passed. His parents hugged him, cried, then never spoke about what happened that day for many years. Young Bill did his best to forget about it. And for the next 15 years, life returned to normal. Bill will later drop out of high school in 1958, uh, young when he's 14, but not uncommon for the area at the time. He'll get a job as a carpenter, move to London. After working there for several years, he will meet and then marry a woman named Abby in 1965. They'll go on to have three children together, Anne, Gail, and Ted. Life seemed to be going so well for Bill, but internally, he was struggling. He suffered from vivid recurring nightmares for the first two years of his marriage. He'd later tell the Warrens, who would write, The dream was simple enough. His wife stood at the kitchen sink on a sunny spring morning, washing the breakfast dishes. He approached her from behind and called her name aloud. She turned around to face him. She was smiling. But the smile vanished instantly and she began screaming, covering her eyes and shrieking so loudly that he was forced to flee the kitchen. What was she seeing? What was she so afraid of? The wolf. Her husband having turned into a werewolf. Bill never told Abby about the dream at the time, and the dream finally ended in the summer of 1967. For the next year and a half, Bill's mind seemed to be at peace. But then 18 months later, he woke up in the middle of the night during a snowstorm, hearing the panting of a wild animal. He was afraid that something had wandered into the house until he realized that the animal noises were coming from him. For the next 15 years, Bill would intermittently be plagued by strange moments like this. He later told the Warrens, Well, I suppose that, like a lot of people, I'd always considered myself a little strange sometimes. Once in a while, I'd look at my hands and imagine that they were paws, the ways an animals might be. Sometimes I'd see a dog running in a field. I'd wonder what that would feel like. There must be a lot of freedom in that, you know. And I'd wonder what the dog would sense, the smells and the sights, and just the feeling of being an animal, without all the human inhibitions we have. And then in 1983, when Bill was 39 years old, whatever situation he was dealing with escalated considerably. He was out with friends Jeremy Wright and Scott Bursnell one Sunday evening. All three men, tired from working all weekend, decided to stop at a pub and enjoy a few drinks together before falling asleep at home. At least that was a plan. But when he entered the pub, Bill felt an icy chill, like the one he'd felt back when he was just nine years old. He ignored it, then proceeded to drink a lot more than he'd intended, trying to drink away strange feelings brewing inside of him. Before heading home, he stopped to use the toilet, and when he looked in the mirror above the sink to wash his hands, he saw a werewolf, clearly, looking back at him. He was initially shocked, quickly looked away, left the bathroom. Then he tried to laugh it off, telling himself he was just drunk and tired. He and his friend Jeremy then climbed into the back of Scott's car to head home. The first several minutes of the ride passed completely peacefully, but then Bill felt what he later referred to as a strange urge. He'd say, Have you ever had a thought so horrible you tried to put it out of your mind immediately? That's how it was that night. I was sitting in the back seat with Jeremy and all of a sudden I felt the overwhelming urge to grab hold of him and really do some violence to him. And he would do some violence. 
Out of nowhere, Bill started growling, then lunged for Jeremy, his hands turning claw-like. He began growling, snarling, snatching, biting the poor man. Jeremy was now put in the uncomfortable position of having to physically defend himself from a friend, and he began to punch Bill. But no matter how hard he hit him, Bill just continued to attack. He continued to snarl and growl and bite. Scott quickly stopped the car. He and Jeremy managed to pop out, then trap Bill inside. After several minutes, Bill seemed to have calmed down. Thinking he was ready to come out and explain what the hell had just happened, they opened the door for Bill, and he jumped out of the car and sprinted off into the nearby forest. Jeremy and Scott didn't leave him or call the authorities. They waited a bit for him to return, and he did. And he was no longer acting animalistic. He also didn't address what had just happened. He claimed he had no memory of the last 20 minutes. He saw that his friends were confused and scared, but didn't know why. Well, he didn't totally know why. He knew it had something to do with the wolf he'd seen back in the pub in the bathroom mirror. That night, his wife Abby told Bill she was scared of him. He'd started growling again when he got home. And then again, when the state passed, he'd claimed no memory of behaving like that. He seemed confused, didn't know what was going on when Abby stared at him terrified, just like she'd looked at him in that recurring nightmare. When he felt like himself again the following morning, Bill told her, I had this fear that I was turning into a wolf. I lunged at Jeremy, tried to take a bite out of his leg. Then I stood on the edge of the woods and just didn't feel like myself. Abby now believed that Bill thought he was turning into a wolf, but not that he was a wolf. She encouraged him to take some time off work. He did, and it seemed to help. He took his two friends out for drinks again after that odd night, told them he'd just been playing a joke on them, sorry for taking it too far, etc. I'm sure there was a little more conversation than that. Then he tried to uh, put it all behind him again and continue on with his life. Things were normal again for a few months. But then on December 5th, 1983, a few weeks after he turned 40, it happened again. Bill was on his way to work after eating dinner with his family. He was working nights at a taxi company for extra money. He felt some sharp chest pains, thought he was having a heart attack, so he drove himself to the emergency room. As he drove, the pain got worse. Soon he was having trouble breathing. By the time he got to the entrance of the hospital, he felt that familiar freezing sensation move across his legs, across his torso. He feared another wolf episode was beginning. That's exactly what was happening. After checking in with the hospital staff, Bill suddenly growled at the nurse during the blood pressure test, the unmistakable rumbling growl of a wolf, he'd later say. His mind was flooded with visions of a wolf leaping at its prey. Bill stood up, growled threateningly at the nurse, who at first tried to guide him to a hospital bed, but then he bit down on her arm hard enough to draw blood. She screamed. The other nurse in the room screamed as well, started to hit him to get him to let go, but he wouldn't stop biting the first nurse. The second nurse then tried to run for help, but Bill blocked the door. A police officer patrolling the hospital heard the commotion, ran towards the sound of the nurse's screams and what sounded like some animal. The officer later reported, there crouched in the far corner was a wild-looking man holding two nurses at bay. The growls were coming not from some animal, but from the man. The officer and a large male intern grabbed hold of Bill and were able to free the nurse from his grasp. They tried to subdue him, but it wasn't easy. He was smaller than both the male nurse and the officer, but seemed to possess superhuman strength. Bill threw furniture at them, kept growling. He kept wrestling free from their attempts to grab him, also kept trying to bite them. Finally, the intern managed to grab Bill from behind, and with the officer's help, they shoved him onto a gurney and strapped him down. A doctor who'd been alerted to the confrontation arrived in the room, injected Bill with sedatives, which finally put an end to the chaos. Bill would later say, Just before I fell into a terrible drug sleep, I had a moment of clarity. I heard the echoes of my own wolf growls. I felt again the peculiar, satisfying sensation of my teeth breaking the skin of the nurse's arm. And I wanted to be free. Not so I could be home with my family, but so I could live in the forest, running free with the other wolves. I remember thinking, You've gone and done it now, Ramsey. 
you've lost your mind for sure. When Bill woke up from the sedatives, he realized he was in Rumwell Mental Hospital. A psychiatrist listened to his story, recommended he stay for observation, but Bill refused and left the hospital. Word of the attack spread around the small community he lived in. Local children were now afraid of him. His co-workers gossiped about him behind his back. I mean, how could they not? At his wife's urging, Bill now began keeping a journal to monitor his mental state. He even tried to keep track of his dreams, worried that recurring nightmares would return and would signal another impending transformation. He lived in constant fear that he would soon be more wolf than human. And then Bill experienced another episode just a few weeks later, January 28, 1984. He had just finished visiting his mother when he felt that unnaturally cold chill once again come over him. He quickly drove himself to the hospital, growling, hands curled into claws, acting strangely by the time he arrived. He threw a terrified nurse across the room shortly after he'd walked through the entrance doors. When two brave patients in the lobby then tried to subdue him, he threw them into chairs and a desk. While the injured nurse screamed for help, Bill fled down a hallway, attacking a doctor and destroying furniture. Four police officers just happened to be entering the hospital after Bill entered the hallway, and when they heard the sound of all the carnage he was creating, they ran after Bill, following the sounds of his path of destruction. They soon circled around him, attempting to subdue him, while Bill snarled and growled and attacked any officer who got too close. Eventually, the officers wrestled Bill to the ground, handcuffed him, and took him to a police station, but not before Bill had done some real damage. Bill had injured one of the officers so badly he'd be hospitalized for four days. Bill started to come back to himself during his arrest. He again claimed to not remember anything, but he knew the wolf had taken over and caused the damage. This time, he wouldn't just be placed in a psychiatric center for observation. He'd also be charged with assault, then threatened with long-term forced placement in in a psychiatric center. Months passed without further incident, and then the nightmares started up again. Now Bill dreamed of running down a long road at dusk. As he ran, his body morphed into that of a wolf. He was too scared to say anything about his dreams to Abby. Yet again, his dreams seemed to signal an upcoming episode. July 22, 1987, Bill, now 43, finished another long day of work. Britain was in an economic recession. Bill was taking extra jobs. The longtime carpenter was repairing some apartments in Hornchurch, a town about 15 miles from London. After work, Bill dropped off some co-workers and stopped at the White Horse Inn for a drink. And then another drink. And another. And another. After drinking too much, he decided to drive home knowing he shouldn't. Worried about being stopped by an officer, he took a route comprised of little side streets that ran through a red light district at one point. Sex worker Lauren Reynolds was working that night, and when Bill saw her, he decided for reasons only known to him to make a citizen's arrest. Lauren was scared before she ever saw Bill. A man in a van had been slowly following her for several minutes. Then he sped up, pulled ahead of her, leaned over, pushed open the door, didn't even come to a stop and told her to get in. Lauren didn't want to, but she needed the money. She later said he was a nice-looking man until you watched his eyes. There was something crazy about them. I don't know how else to describe them. After she climbed inside, Bill drove silently for a while. Lauren was terrified. She told him that she wanted to leave now, and then Bill stated he was placing her under a citizen's arrest. Bill later said, I had no idea what I was doing. I just had this need to take her to the police station. Maybe I was, sec- maybe I was secretly afraid that I was going to harm her in some way, and I wanted her to be in a safe place. As Bill drove her to the police station, he felt another attack coming on. When they pulled up to the station, Lauren jumped out of the van and ran inside. Officer Brad Busby was working that night. He saw Lauren run inside the police station, hysterical and terrified. Busby quickly headed outside to search for the man she was running from. When Busby approached Bill's car, he immediately could tell he was this was not going to be a typical confrontation with a John who'd maybe had too much to drink. 
Bill later said he felt the wolf taking over right as the officer approached his car. Busby would later recall, he just watched me. I began to sense how strange he looked. There was something not quite human in the eyes, particularly. When Busby asked Bill to exit his van and come in for a breathalyzer test, Bill refused and started growling. Then he stepped out of the van, and when Busby touched his arm, Bill quickly threw the officer to the ground and started to attack him. Busby later said his face underwent an incredible transformation. His eyes got especially crazy. His lip pulled back over his teeth. His hands suddenly became claw-like. He was tearing at me the way an animal would, as if he was trying to rend my flesh. Busby wasn't able to stop Bill from continuing his attack. It seemed like he was quickly growing both angrier and stronger. Bill now started to strangle him. As he grabbed Busby's throat, he repeated over and over, When the devil's in me, I'm strong! When the devil's in me, I'm strong! Two officers now burst out of the station doors to come to Busby's aid, and then two more after them, six officers now attempting to subdue Bill. By the time they'd get the situation under control, six more had made it outside. In the end, it took a dozen officers to get him into handcuffs. And it took two separate injections of a massive, a massive amount of a powerful sedative from a doctor who worked with the officers to knock him out. Bill was then committed to Runwell Psychiatric Center again, underwent a battery of tests for the next 10 days. No one could figure out what was wrong with him. Bill now decided that if he couldn't find a way to stop the attacks, he was going to end his life. His story had made it to the tab tabloids, and he and his family were now being harassed by the press. Thankfully, the press attention led him to Ed and Lorraine Warren. The demonologists were in London filming a TV show, getting ready for dinner one night when Lorraine saw Bill's story on the TV program Incredible Sunday. At first, they dismissed it as a hoax, but then Lorraine couldn't stop thinking about Bill for the next few days. She believed he was showing signs of demonic possession. Lorraine called a local police station, was able to arrange a meeting with a constable, who then agreed to reach out to the Ramses and discuss a meeting. He did, and the Ramses agreed. Bill, Abby, Ed, Lorraine, and their friends Christina and Andy DeMarco soon met at a restaurant in London. After Bill explained his story, Ed told him, I think you've been possessed by the spirit of a wolf. Bill didn't believe it, but the Warrens told him he should come to a church in Connecticut to undergo an exorcism under Bishop Robert McKenna. Not knowing what else to do at this point, Bill's friends and his wife Abby encouraged him to go. Days before his flight, Bill had another attack. He was watching TV when he felt that ominous chill come over him. He quickly called for Abby to help him. The family dog, sensing something was wrong, started growling at Bill. Bill hit the poor dog, sent it flying into the wall. Even though she was scared, Abby approached Bill, told him uh, over and over to stop. Eventually, her voice calmed him down and, she, and he stopped the attack before it escalated further. This was the first time someone was able to subdue Bill without force. July 23rd, 1989, Bill and Abby flew to Connecticut. In their first night in America, Bill again became the wolf. Abby later reported he began growling, a deep, rumbling, angry sound. After a long moment, I realized that these were not my husband's eyes at all. They were darker, glistening, furious eyes of some other species. Abby was again able to stop Bill from attacking her or some other person by repeatedly telling Bill she loved him. But then the next morning, right before leaving the motel for the exorcism, Bill did attack Abby, tried to bite her throat and choke her. Abby was able to hit him in the jaw, knock his hands away. She was able to roll off the bed, was about to smash him in the head with a glass bottle, when she instead screamed for him to stop, told him that she loved him, and she later told the Warrens he stopped right there, right then in the middle of the motel floor. Bill and Abby were not surprisingly eager to get the exorcism started. They rushed to Bishop Robert McKenna's church. Attending the exorcism would be Ed, Lorraine, Bill, Abby, four police officers, David Alford, and John Cleave, reporters, and of course, Bishop McKenna. Nothing happened for the first half hour of the exorcism. 
Bishop McKenna spoke in Latin, demanded that the demon identify itself, and then, according to Bishop McKenna, he began to see something before anyone else in the room could. He said, I could feel, I could feel and see what Bill could not. The demonic spirit in him was beginning to fight me through Bill. It was going to be a struggle, but right from the start, I felt that the exorcism would be successful. I rarely have that kind of optimism. McKenna took Bill's uh, head in his hands, ordered the demon to leave. Suddenly, Bill's face contorted, his hands formed into claws. McKenna could see the internal battle happening. One moment he'd be himself, the next moment his face would start to suggest a feral quality, he said. Bill vacillated back and forth between trembling in fear of the bishop and then trying to attack him. At one point, when he was trying to attack the bishop, McKenna pulled out a crucifix, pushed it into Bill's face. Bill got up from his chair, snarling, trying to grab McKenna, who backed up behind the altar gate, continuously holding up his cross, repeating prayers in Latin. Soon, Bill began to feel that all-too-familiar coldness inside of him start to disappear. Soon, he no longer felt the need to attack the bishop. He'd say, As I sat there, I felt myself becoming purified. The poison that had been in my body drained from me completely now, and I was left without any strength at all. After one last loud, deep, final roar, the presence inside of him that Bill believed to be a wolf vanished, seemingly for good. The Warrens would write he felt a great peace within himself and an almost overpowering love for his wife and children. When Bill left back to Britain, all he could think was, I'm free for the first time in my life since I was nine years old. Three years later, 1992, Bill gave an interview on his progress. He said that there had been no incidents since his exorcism, no dreams, no weird fugue states, no feelings of that chill. Since 1992, Bill has stayed out of the public eye. Due to a lack of any more stories about a man around London believing himself to be a wolf and assaulting people, I have to think he must still be doing okay, if he's still alive. Such a strange story. We'll never know what caused Bill to behave the way he did, if it was mental illness or something paranormal. His story yet another reminder of how little we still understand about the full spectrum of how the human condition can express itself. Excuse me, that is wild. Wild, wild, wild. In the beginning, I thought maybe he was just on testosterone therapy with his inhumane <laughs> strength. But like, what the heck? Mm-hmm. How did his parents never take him to the doctor? That was my immediate uh, different thought. Different time, different, uh, you know, like working class. Uh, it sounded like they were okay. Like, I mean, it didn't sound like they were mm-hmm. destitute. I'm not saying things weren't tight, but. I don't think people thought about that for the most part in the 50s. I don't think that was an option that crossed a lot of people's minds, true, like truly. But like, not even to like the pediatrician. No, I'm not even uh, saying let's yeah. go to you know the psychiatrist or the licensed therapist or whatever. I'm like, how do you not at least go to the doctor? Like, hey, something's going on with my kid. I don't know. I think that, I think that reaction is pretty common, though. Ugh, I think just like, wow, oh, that was crazy. Let's ignore it and hope it goes away. I mean, that's how my that's how my family deals with pretty much all uh, all illness. This is true, and that's Physi- even physical e- or mental. And yeah, this is recent. Right, that's twenty twenty two. Yeah, just uh, ignore it and hope it goes away. God, just pretend it didn't happen. I can't wrap my head around that. Yeah, I just can't because my family super broke, super poor, mm-hmm. couldn't afford to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. My mom went. would have been at the doctor the next day. She'd been like, I don't know what to do with this. I don't know how to handle this because she understands her limited understanding mm-hmm. right it's like that that self-awareness of like i certainly don't have the answers so yeah. but but this isn't but i know this isn't okay yeah that's just wild 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 uh, i have some pictures okay okay this first one is the uh cover of the uk sun tabloid friday june july 24th 1987 the headline werewolf seized in south end the top headline so this did get a fair amount of press, and there's other, you know, things if you look out there on the web, other old, you know, tabloid, you know, covers and stuff where, yeah, this got a 
a fair amount of press for a while. It's so crazy. Uh, this next one's a photo of Bill Ramsey shortly before he disappeared from the public eye. He seems to be uh, doing all right then. Okay, yeah. I mean, just seems like hmm? normal regular dude. Regular dude. Although, I will say, he does have wolf-like features. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could just, like, see it with that story in your head. Yeah. You could see how, like, the furrowed brow, the deep-set eyes, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the way that, like, he has a thin upper lip, how it could have, like... Uh, snarled. Snarled back or under. Yeah. The, the hair, just the way it happens to be thinning. I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, this next one's a photo taken from Father McKenna's exorcism of Bill. And then uh, this next picture is a, a... I can't believe they didn't tie him down for that exorcism, knowing mm, his capabilities. I don't know. This next one's a picture of Bill on a full moon. Nice. So it looks extra wolf-like. Yeah, definitely. Look mm-hmm. at his hair. Mm-hmm. It's like really uh, the hair came out. So Yeah, I, he really needs to get his eyebrows done. And of course, that's Michael J. Fox and Teen Wolf. I know. And, I wrote that down early on. <clears throat> Teen Wolf, Michael J. Fox. Well, then this last one is, uh, is a video of Bill. Obviously not Bill. It's Michael J. Fox uh, playing basketball in high school. So you can see, like, you know, extra strong, extra hairy. There's a part of me that finds that to be so sad with how sick Michael J. Fox is. I know. But he was, yeah, he was, he had a I'm sure it was very his good stunt run. double. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Or maybe he had, came out, yeah, probably was his stunt yeah, double. Yeah, stunt double. because you can't so really good. see the face. I know, we should rewatch it. Uh, that'd be fun one with the kids. I, uh, literally, movie. note, I wrote that note. That, and we haven't watched The Third Conjuring. I know. I wanted to watch that. Monroe uh, will watch it with us. Yep, okay. She's into it. Yeah, it did. I mean, it did great at the box office. My sister said it was good. I just, yeah, I never saw it. And I, and I am speaking of horror stuff. I know we've gotten some uh, emails. I am watching Archive 81. Oh, yeah. So I will say I am on episode six right now. And this is a Netflix, you know, new horror series. that's trending real hard right now. Uh, I like it. Just a warning if you get into watching it. I don't know how it's going to end. Mm-hmm. What the payoff's going to be. It is definitely a slow burner. Ugh. It's very atmospheric. It's not going to be for everybody. You have to be really patient with it. Okay. Like, there's a, yeah. Uh, you know, you'll go long stretches without anything other than just being creepy and odd. It's, it's, mm. it's like a, a mystery horror. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Actually, I might kind of like that. The, I, on the mm. other hand, am watching a different kind of show. You're watching The Sopranos. I'm watching The Sopranos, which mm-hmm. I never watched. Mm-hmm. And we were traveling this past week for work, and I was on the plane, and like, you know, you have the 20 minutes of takeoff and yeah. landing where there's no Wi-Fi for me to get any mm-hmm. work done. So that's generally yep. when we watch a show. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't downloaded anything, and I was like, oh, I'm going to watch this. But I did watch in the hotel this last, because I was gone for like a week. I watched Maid, M-A-I-D, on Hulu. I don't know that one. Uh, I mean, got to give like a big trigger warning, lots of domestic violence, abuse, whatever the proper term is. I can't remember. Um, But a really, really good, good story. Really good. Based on a a true story, based on a book somebody wrote. Is that a series or a film? I mean, it, it's a series hmm. asterisk. I don't know if there will be a second season because I feel like it's all wrapped up. But um, God, it was so excellent. Okay. So excellent. And there's so much good content out there. It's absurd. I know. I wish I could just like hole up in a hotel for like maybe a month mm-hmm. and have nothing but snacks and TV. We should probably stop talking about all this great content. <laughs> I feel like we're like, oh my gosh, I know, I'm glad you guys are listening to this, but there's so much other stuff out there. there. There's so much other stuff that you could be listening to. Watch it. <laughs> it is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, we have the most loyal fan. They, uh, they would always make time for us, Dan. Uh, well, uh, uh, ready to move along from werewolves to aliens? Yes, let me just see. H9, how do you not go to the doctor after this? Oh, I, I found it interesting that his, um, th- that he had like a, a signal that it was about to happen, the wave of cold. Mm-hmm, get really, really cold. Yeah, because I get waves of like extreme cold. Maybe you're about to turn into a wolf. I know. Don't make me mad. Maybe, or maybe, what if, though, what if your uh, condition, your version, instead of turning into a wolf, you, mm. you sometimes just turn into a fluffy doodle? Mm. 
How great would that be? Mm-hmm. I would get so, so many pets. Just more weird than scary. I would love it. I would love it. Because one of my love languages is touch. Mm-hmm. So you'd run into a, an ER room, and instead of like throwing people around the room, <laughs> you would just run into people and insist to be petted. Oh, people would love it. I could be Maybe. a therapy dog. <laughs> This is great. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> no, but but it, I I thought it was, I guess, cool or whatever that like he could kind of know when it was coming. It doesn't sound like mm-hmm. he was able to do anything to prevent himself from acting yeah. on it. Doesn't sound like he had much he, warning either. Right, so, but he yeah. like knew it was coming and yeah. Uh, surprising that Abby could talk him off a ledge sometimes mm-hmm. just by repeating like "I love you, I love mm-hmm. you." It's me. So brave of her. Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming they're still together. There was no report of them not. Uh, after 92, they just disappear from public view. So, but, they, but there was, yeah, there's no uh, reports of them not being together. Man, for, for better or worse. Mm-hmm. She wasn't kidding. Yeah. Good for her. Because mm-hmm. I don't know if I would have been able to. <laughs> That's not, yeah. Well, it's just wild. scary. Yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Before we head to the skies above Michigan's Upper Peninsula, we first need to take a quick in-between story sponsor break. Thanks for listening to our sponsor deals, creeps and beepers. Uh, we see the emails and messages and appreciate you using the landing URLs and sales codes so sponsors know that you heard about the deals here. Yeah, actually, we get a lot of emails about like, hey, what was that? So don't ever hesitate if you mm. miss one somewhere along the way. Like, oh, I knew I wanted to get that thing, but I forgot. Just let us know. We're happy to redirect you. A uh, little bit of setup again on this one. Uh, the idea of having your loved one disappear. What a frightening concept. Mm-hmm. Like how long would it take of living with the not knowing before you were, you know, ground down to a shell of the person you once were months, years? Would you find a strength you didn't know you had or would it break you? Would you wake up every morning for the rest of your life hoping this would finally be the day you got some answers? Yes. Would you always have trouble falling asleep at night wondering if your loved one was still out there somewhere mm-hmm. hoping you'd find them, hoping you'd help them? Uh, living like that for hundreds or thousands of days seems like something out of a horror novel. Now imagine, what if it strongly seemed like a cover-up surrounded the disappearance of your loved one? What if authorities gave you conflicting reports about what happened? What if the reports just didn't add up, and you knew in your gut that you were being lied to, but didn't know why, and there was no way of proving it? How much emotional turmoil would that add to already seemingly unbearable levels of feelings of desperation, sadness, and madness? This is what happened to the loved ones of the United States Air Force pilot, 1st Lieutenant Felix Moncla, and 2nd Lieutenant Robert Wilson. Time now for the tale of the Kinross incident. The night an Air Force jet Moncla was piloting mysteriously disappeared over Lake Superior, November 23, 1953, was a stormy one. Dangerous to be out flying that night. So it was very surprising when, near the U.S.-Canadian border, U.S. Air Defense Command noticed a blip on the radar where it shouldn't have been. An unidentified flying object, technically a UFO whether or not it was paranormal, was blasting through restricted airspace over Lake Superior. Rushing to investigate, an F-89C Scorpion jet took off from Kinross Air Force Base, it would later be renamed uh, Kinshlow, with two crew members on board. First Lieutenant Felix Moncla, who had clocked 811 flying hours, including 121 in similar aircraft, took the pilot seat, while Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson was observing radar. And that would be the last time anyone saw the two men. Once airborne, Lieutenant Wilson had difficulty tracking the unknown object. It kept changing course drastically. He flew along at roughly 500 miles per hour, pursuing the object for 30 minutes and gradually closing in. Right before he and Wilson vanished, it seemed like they were about to relay visual confirmation regarding what they were chasing. But that wouldn't be the case. On the ground, the radar operator guided the jet down from 25,000 to 7,000 feet, watching one blip chase the other across the radar screen. Gradually, the jet was almost caught up with an unknown object about 70 miles off of uh, 
Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan at an altitude of 8,000 feet. At that point, the two radar blips converged into one, locked together, as one reporter would put it later. And then, according to an official incident report, the radar returned from the F-89 simply disappeared from the ground-controlled interception station's radar scope. And then the UFO abruptly veered off course and vanished. The U.S. Air Force, U.S. Coast Guard, and Canadian Air Force immediately conducted an extensive search and rescue effort. No wreckage or sign of the pilots was ever found. False reports of wreckage would come in over the following several years, but it was never confirmed to be parts from Moncla Scorpion. The Air Force's official news release about the disappearance, delivered to the Associated Press, stated that the vanished jet was followed by radar until it merged with an object 70 miles off of Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan. The statement appeared in a story in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Jet to Aboard Vanishes Over Lake Superior. But then the story would change. According to a later Air Force statement, the ground control radar operator had misread the scope. Now they said that the F-89 had successfully completed its mission, intercepting and identifying the UFO as a Dakota, a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 aircraft, flying some 30 miles off course. Lieutenant Moncla, likely stricken with vertigo, then crashed into the lake during his return to base. But then Canadian officials directly refuted that account, publicly stating that no flights of theirs had taken place in that area that night. There was no Dakota. And the vertigo story was also shown to be nothing more than a wild guess. At first, it was reported that Moncla had a history of vertigo. But when officials and fellow pilots were later interviewed, this was revealed to be nothing more than an unsubstantiated and likely very untrue rumor. Meanwhile, two separate Air Force representatives provided Lieutenant Moncla's widow with wildly contradictory explanations of the incident. In one version of events, the pilot had crashed into the lake while flying too low. In the other version of events, the jet had exploded at a high altitude. While Wilson's family seems to have stayed quiet about all this, Moncla's widow and parents demanded answers. Why were there so many conflicting stories about what happened to him? What really went on that day over the lake? Many years later, when documents were declassified, the incident's case file from Project Blue Book, the Air Force's uh, own UFO investigatory team, reiterated the Air Force assertion that the jet successfully accomplished its mission and that the crash was an accident probably caused by an attack of vertigo. It attributed the abnormal radar behavior to unusual atmospheric conditions and deemed the inability to recover wreckage as understandable given the deep water. But all this, of course, is just conjecture. None of it is certain. And then more evidence of a cover-up would emerge. Investigators from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena discovered that any mention of the mission had inexplicably been expunged from official records many years after it happened. And the Aerospace Technical Intelligence Center's official line on the case was, there is no record in the Air Force files of a UFO sighting at Kinross Air Force Base on November 23, 1953. There is no case in the files which even closely parallels those circumstances. Cover-ups and conflicting reports. None of the witnesses that night who are working ground control and following the strange object on radar have ever spoken out about the incident. Why is that? Why has wreckage never been found? Why did the Air Force suddenly change its story and then change it again? Why did some of the files pertaining to this incident disappear? Some ufologists are convinced that Moncla and Wilson's jet was blasted out of the sky by the UFO or that they were somehow abducted, taken by the UFO to parts unknown. We'll likely never know for certain what happened in the sky over Lake Superior, November 23, 1953. What we do know is that Moncla and Wilson's parents and Moncla's widow likely have died now, never knowing what happened to their son or her husband. 
And the thought of having to endure that is scarier to this parent and husband than any ghost story. I mean, what the... Right. What? Okay, I mean, first of all, I'm not like I'm not like anti-government or like, oh, the government's yeah, covering yeah. things up. But the government's clearly covering something up here. And they do cover up th- things well, sometimes. Of course they do. Right? And it's like oftentimes for our own good, whether we like it or not, there's right. just things that we just don't. I believe there are plenty of things that we just don't need to know. And, and sometimes, I mean, there is a history. And I've, you know, this is something I've covered on Time Suck. And you can consa- sound like a conspiracy nut, but it is very documented. There's been congressional hearings where, you know, CIA documents, CIA re- representatives have read things. I mean, you can find public records mm-hmm. where things were covered up because they were really shady, shitty things to do. Yeah, yeah, Experiments on U.S. citizens Mm -hmm. where they knew people were being harmed but uh, justified, you know, the experiments uh, for military purposes. You know, there's been, I mean, uh, a lot of things that have happened for sure. For sure. And so this seems like one of them. Yeah. uh, And so, yeah, it just makes you wonder, like, well, why did they cover it up? That's my thing is it's like I, despite all of the things that have been covered up over the years, right, right, wrong, or indifferent. Yeah. I often think that. Or I try to remember that we're only human and they're only human. And yeah. in the moment, mm-hmm. they're just trying to make the decision that they think is best for the greater good. That doesn't mean that it's the right decision, sure, right? Sure. But in the moment, it's like, I don't know if we want everybody to know that we've been torturing people yeah. because that creates distrust in the government. And like, do yeah. we ever need more distrust in the government? No. Okay. So all that aside. And there was a lot of hysteria in the early 50s about, about UFOs. UFOs. Yeah, of course. I mean, listen, if you open up that can of worms, there would be a lot of hysteria about it now. And now with mm-hmm. the advancement in technology that we have, and we are finding that there is life on other mm-hmm. planets, that we are not like the most important solar system, that there are all these other things happening out there. It, I think it would just open up a can of worms that we just really... We just need to like deal yes, with COVID first. <laughs> yeah, especially back then. Well, and there have been actually uh, recent things, you know, uh, naval intelligence and things, you know, yeah. in, in the recent years where it's like there's um, there's some, been a lot of weird unexplained sightings, mm-hmm. you know, recently. And yeah. so maybe, and they just, maybe did, UFOs got these guys. And they declassified, um, it was not that long ago that they declassified all that information. And there was mm-hmm. like tons of UFO information. Right. Yep. Out. Yep. Um, I can't think of what it's called. I'm Whatever. I can't either. Yeah, it's not a, it's not the black book, but it's oh, like Project Blue Book. Blue, uh, yeah, is that what they declassified? I think, I think so. Something like well, that. Well, that that I think aspects of that were declassified a long time ago, but they did, they just uh, declassified some more uh, uh, recent sightings. Right. So if I'm this, if I'm a member of this family, still alive somehow miraculously in 2022, yeah. I am combing all of that declassified information for hints of. Okay, was that my husband? Was mm-hmm. that that? You know, because it's not like it's going to be like, and then Bob on this day, right? They're not yeah. going to clearly call it out that way. But I just think for sure with all those conflicting reports and with the Canadian government going, no, we're not going to take the blame for this. Yep. So yeah, so what happened? Because what good, how would it benefit them to have taken blame for it? Right? So they're like, no, no way you're pinning this on us. And it could be as... I don't know. I don't know what it could be. I was going to say it could be as simple as mechanical failure, but that wouldn't explain the other radar blip. Why is there no carnage? Why is there no wreckage? That was my thing over and over. It's like, okay, yeah, for sure. Things go wrong, right? Because a a flying machine in the air is made by humans and humans make errors all the Mm -hmm. time. He's a pilot. Whether or not he did or did not suffer from vertigo ever before, like that's something that can just come on out of nowhere. Yeah, something could have gone wrong. Absolutely. That is just as simple as he lost control. But then you would have found the plane in Lake yeah. Superior, or there at least would have been some signs of it. Right. Yep. I think. Mm-hmm. I think. I mean, I don't know. What's that plane that like went missing? Malaysian Airlines uh, yeah. flight 360, 370, something like something that. Something like that. It's like, yeah. 
I mean, that was a much larger piece of equipment that just went poof. Right. Maybe they're in the same place. But yeah, I mean, in UFO, I don't know. I just think like, I, I definitely think that like whatever, like this flying object could have absolutely like whatever sucked in that plane or attached to it somehow. And then something comes out of the, the UFO and then extracts these two humans and, you know. Who knows? Yeah experiments and information and i don't know it's just wild mm -hmm. yeah it's just so it's so weird it's so hard for our brains to kind of like um yeah we, we just i mean we're wired hardwired to want to have conclusions to things yeah you know like the story needs to have an ending and it's like we joked on here about how like you're like oh, i hate it when it's just like the story just stops makes me nuts because we're like yeah we're conditioned we were so like you know uh i mean the story arc has a denouement, has an, has an ending, has a conclusion, has, yeah. it wraps up. And then when that doesn't happen, it's like our, our it, we just left with that very unsatisfied, unsettled feeling. It was mm -hmm. like, yeah, but, but what did happen then? And then our minds wander. And with mm -hmm. these mis mysterious disappearances, it's very unsettling. Yeah, I, just, I want an answer. Mm -hmm. I'm going to spend hours Googling this later. <laughs> uh, I, have some, I have some photos. The first one is a military ID photo of First Lieutenant Felix Eugene Moncla Jr. Which, by the way, the name Felix, one of my favorite names ever. Yeah, it is a cool name. It's a great name if I would have had a boy. Uh, this next one, there's no good pics on the webs that I can find. So this is the best I could find of Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson. Okay. So just like two dudes. Mm -hmm. Just two regular guys. Uh, this next one, F-89C Scorpion Jet. This is pictured in 1956. So this is the same kind of aircraft Monclo was flying and Wilson the day of the incident. Yeah, I mean, like, how does that just go vanished. missing with just no trace? I don't know. That, that's wild. Uh, maybe the aliens who looked, uh, you know, look, uh, look like this are responsible. We don't know. I don't know if I think that that's what aliens look like. Okay, it was make all kinds of different aliens. Who knows? Sure, maybe, but maybe I think that like, we've demonized them. Maybe or, right? maybe, or maybe some are good. Maybe some are really bad and scary. Sure. But that's like all humans. I, I, yeah. I just think about it this way. Like, yeah, okay, they're bipeds and they look like us or whatever, but like, I don't know. Maybe they have normal eyes and hair, and maybe they don't look like that. Maybe they look like this next one. Okay. Maybe this is the kind of aliens that are oh, coming for us. Okay. The one from the Aliens film franchise. I also don't think that. Because I think what makes aliens or unknown th things out there so scary to me huh? is that they could look just like us. Like, oh. what if they're amongst us already? And maybe that's how people go missing. What if Ooh. one of those pilots already was an alien undercover <laughs> and then he is yeah. communicating with his little UFO out there, his mm -hmm. other friends. And he's like, okay, today's the day. And then off they go. Maybe. I don't know. Just another thing to be afraid of. Maybe maybe they're like uh, Marvin the Mar Martian from Looney Tunes. Oh my God, I forgot about him. He's a fun looking alien. He was cute. I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to be abducted, it'd be nice to be abducted by someone who looks like him, I think with his little, you know, his little weird Roman hat. But what if we explored this idea that, like, there could be aliens among us? What if they're shapeshifters? What mm. if the next time you get on an airplane to go do some shows somewhere, I guess, what's next? Orlando? Yeah. Okay, what if you're going to Orlando and you don't know it, but it's an alien undercover flying your plane, and then you and your whole plane go, foop? Yeah, that'd be a bummer. For me, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> because I would be obsessed with finding you. Yeah. I would be the crazy lady on all the news channels, in every magazine. I would take any interview. I would take any help anyone was willing to offer. Well, and, what, and what if, meanwhile, I just got flown to some paradise? And I can't, and I can't talk to you. Uh, but they, and, and then I get to drink some kind of potion that just makes me not feel like uh, guilt but or I was just going to say that. I was I'm, gonna say I'm like, living it up. What if, what if that's the thing? If they're just we like, can hope. 
We don't know. Like, what if Monkle and Wilson are out there just, uh, you know, on a beach somewhere out in space living their best life? What if they get, like, some potion that doesn't age them? Yeah. And they're just like, they don't why even can't know. can't be super happy? Yeah. Yeah, right. They don't even know that they left behind family and friends that mm-hmm. are sad. They're just like, woo. Maybe alien worlds are way better than this one. Oh, my God. That's a nice thought. There's no traffic. Takes a little edge off. Mm-hmm. People are polite. Yeah. Well, one can hope. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Are you ready for me to tell you some traditionally scary stories? Let's, yeah, let's balance this out. Okay, let's do it. Who's your squishy friend this week? Uh, I have uh, Frankenstein. Oh my God, he's so cute. <laughs> he is so cute. He is. He's very soft. Does he smell? Uh, he does. He smells good. I don't, I don't know what kind of, I don't know what it is, but. I, I don't know if he's intentionally. Like vanilla. He smells like vanilla. Oh, vanilla. Vanilla bean. Mm, I don't like vanilla scented things. I do. Because it just always smells fake. Hmm. Hmm. Anyways. Okay. Well, basements. Basements. Basements, which are inherently creepy. Yes. Right? Like, it's like even at our house, even though we don't have a traditional basement, like we live in a split level, so we don't have that like dark, dreary, unfinished basement. Not that you can't, but like mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's our living room. Right, right. Yep, it's our family room. But still, you know, it's, it's like scares the, me. It's, it's hard to get. Well, I think part of it too is, I mean, we do have one like big egress window. But in general, it's like harder to get out of basements. A lot of times there's no windows. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's like a feeling of being trapped. Like, you know, oh, it's like yeah, I never the, thought about there's that. only one exit, the stairs out of the basement. Ugh, yeah. And if especially if your basement has a door, like in a lot of horror movies, you know, mm-hmm. there's a reason for that where it's oh, like, like at the top of the steps. Yep, yep. Like when you're down there, if somebody were to lock the door, like you're especially trapped. You can't fucking climb out. You can't dig your way out. There's only yeah, truly one exit. <laughs> same, same with an attic. You know, a lot of times, like, yeah, there's a window. But what, are you going to throw yourself off the roof? Maybe. So there's, like, only one safe exit, and that's the ladder, like, to get out of the attic. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it would induce more feelings of claustrophobia oh, on man. top of everything else. Did you have a basement growing up? Uh, no. My grandparents had a, a hand-dug root cellar, which was creepy. That that thing is creepy. Mm-hmm. And then, well, that no, you're seeing that's the one that they poured concrete. This was a grandma and grandpa's old house. Oh. Before, it was just dirt. It was, like, a dirt floor, lots of spiders. And then, other than that, no. No, okay, well, we had a basement growing up, and I often think about my childhood basement. We lived in a ranch on a basement, Mm -hmm. and uh, part of it was finished, part of it was unfinished, and there was this unfinished part of the basement. In a ranch-style house, not like on, like, like there's like horses and stuff outside. Did I? Do you think that I grew up with horses all of a sudden? (laughs) No, no, I'm just making sure, just the way you said that, if someone's listening to the show for the first time, you said you grew up on a ranch. A ranch on a basement. Everybody knows that oh, that's a oh, kind okay. of house. We, oh. we grew up on a single-story ranch on a basement. Got it. Yeah, that's a, a common. Uh, my brain, my my brain went to. Term. Now your mom has a cowboy hat on. <laughs> now you're milking cows on the. Can barn. you imagine Saint Joan on a horse? I don't nope. think so. That's not that's not her vibe <laughs> no, at all. It's not okay. But our house, so it was. You would walk in the back door, and immediately the steps were in front of you. It was like ten steps as you walked into the house, mm-hmm. which. You know, not much. And then you go down the stairs, and the part of the basement that you would land in to the left and to the right was finished, but on the other side, yeah, was unfinished. Okay. And so it was like the laundry. There was an extra shower down there, like so plumbed to have a bathroom, but we were so broke, we were never able to like build a bathroom down there. But there was just still a shower head. It, it was enclosed. It was just like real shoddy. Okay. Okay. And then if you as you kept going, or, I mean, our house was maybe like 1,500 square feet. So the basement was long. Yeah. And then on the other part was like there was lots of piping. It was where the water heater was, is where the breaker mm-hmm, was. Mm-hmm. There was an extra oven down there. I, it was so weird looking back on it. Yeah. And there was this closet. It was the creepiest fucking closet of all closets in the history of closets. <laughs> it had two sliding doors and they mm-hmm. had they didn't have handles on them. They just had these little 
holes, sort of, so you would like put your finger in it and pull it back. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And we would play hide and go seek religiously in the basement, like just like our kids mm-hmm. do at your mom's house now. Mm-hmm. And I would hide in that closet amongst my mom's old dresses. Her old wedding dress was in there, okay. like all my old ballet costumes. Hey, yeah. Great hiding spot. I was apparently never afraid of that but always afraid of going in the basement by myself. I think it was like this idea that someone else was down there. I was okay. Yeah. So I'm telling you all of that as a setup because this entire story, I was like, oh, this is my childhood. Kids playing hide and go seek in the basement, uh-huh. all fun and games until somebody finds something that doesn't belong there okay. or someone that doesn't belong there. Mm-hmm. So good. Hello, Bad Magic. Thanks for all of your entertainment and all that you do. My name is Yur, and I want to tell you the story of the time my friends and I decided to play hide and seek in the basement. My family immigrated to the USA when I was about six. We moved to Akron, Ohio, into our first American home with some of our relatives. I was young, and I didn't know anything about rent or why it was so cheap. We had little to nothing since we had immigrated with whatever we could carry. That house was off that house was off from the first time I laid eyes on it, but compared to what we had in Thailand, it felt like a novelty. The U.S. is such an exciting place, but as we are poor, we only had so much entertainment. We didn't have a TV, nor the internet. It was 2004, and again, we were super poor. We had our, sorry, my my hair thing just snapped, and uh, it scared me because I was like, who's pulling on my hair? (laughs) We had ourselves, and we had our creativity. A game we saw our American classmates play at school was hide-and-seek. Very easy to understand, even though we didn't speak the language. One person is the seeker, while the rest hide. Make sure you are not found, because the last one found is the winner. We were kids, and we all liked to be winners. One of my friends, John, said that he was a great seeker and volunteered to be the first seeker. He started counting in Hamong as we ran around the house trying to keep quiet. There were five of us, including John. Four of us were looking for the best hiding places. When we played this before, I was one of the few first found, and I refused to be that loser again. (laughs) Going into the basement would be my golden ticket. My friend Jane saw me and decided to join me. We both giggled as we walked down the stairs. The basement was never scary to us because there were two finished rooms down there, and we frequently played down there in the open space, running around as much as we wanted to. Although there was one space in the basement that scared us a little. It was usually dark and so many different noises came from it that we we refused to venture into it. It was essentially a heater room with a metal sink and whatnot. I knew that this was the perfect place to finally be the winner. We didn't even turn on the lights because why would we do that? That gives our location away. I walked toward the dark place and Jane stopped. I told her I was going to be the winner and for her to go find her own spot. She said something along the lines of like, no, I want to be the winner. She went off in the opposite direction, and I went into the dark, scary space. But I wasn't scared. I was excited. I was definitely going to win. After I found a small space to hide behind, I listened for John to come find us. I could still hear him counting. My other friends stole my idea and also made their way down the stairs into the basement. I heard Sam ask, where should we hide? You're and Jane are down here too. I know, over here. Olivia whispered, like pointing at a hiding spot for her and Sam. Sam giggled, and then all was quiet. Ready or not, here I come, John shouted. I held my breath and closed my eyes, thinking this would help not to give away my location. I was six. Of course I thought this was going to work. I heard some of my friends moving locations, a method used to mess with the seeker, but also a risk of giving yourself away. John said, I know you're all down here, and the stairs creaked as he walked down. 
Someone quickly scrambled next to me. My friends were trading spaces to throw John off of their trails. I opened my eyes and said, hey, this is my spot. Go find your own. My eyes were still adjusting since I had had them closed the entire time, so I couldn't see which of my friends was next to me. I pushed the person again and said, move, you're going to get us found. I pushed them again and the friend disappeared. Well, that was weird, I thought, but whatever. I was going to be the winner. Found you, John shouted, and you. After a few minutes, really hiding together? Too easy. Okay, so that leaves your. Okay. My excitement was over my head. You better find her quickly before she counts to ten and is the winner. Wait, if you're is missing, then who's this? What do you mean? Uh. Who? What? What are you talking about? And suddenly everyone screamed and then ran up the stairs. Wait! I shouted as I ran out of my spot and after them. I was the last one to leave the basement and John almost closed the basement door on me. Oh my God. When he saw that it was me, he pulled me into the kitchen and then slammed the door behind me. This caused my parents to come and check on us. What's all the noise about? We saw a ghost, John said. Olivia and I were hiding together and then John John found Jane and a ghost. Sam said, Jane starting to cry. I thought it was Yur, but when I looked where Yur was hiding, she was still sitting next to me, so I got super scared. They all looked at me, and my dumb ass said, so wait, I'm the winner? <laughs> uh, yeah, because a ghost took your place, Sam said. Stop that, my mom shouted. Stop playing around, or the ghost will really come find you. Go play something else and be quiet about it this time. We decided to go outside and refocus. I turned to Jane. Why did you come back to my spot? You almost gave me away. She looked at me weird. I didn't come to your spot. I was hiding in my mom's room the whole time. And that was the exact moment when we all stopped playing in the basement and the exact moment my fear of the basement developed. That is like, they have, I mean, with for good reason, played with this kind of uh, situation in horror movies. Yeah. And it freaks me out every time. Like, I, I just have so many chills right oh, now. It's so creepy. Just thinking about being a little kid, playing hide and seek, and then thinking that one of your, you know, cousins, siblings, whatever, friends right. is uh, like, dang it. Like, what are you doing? Like, yeah. Like, I'm hiding here. And just that distinct sound of somebody like crawling, <laughs> crawling into closet or whatever. Uh-huh. And then finding out later that they were for sure not there. Uh-huh. And then forever wondering, like, well, then what the fuck was that? Uh-huh. Well, I and, and I take it from the story that they all saw Man. it because it was like, well, these two friends and then these two friends. But then it was like, wait, what? And then it was like, oh, my God, that's not like it was just like weird. It almost sounds like the ghost took on the shape or the look of the storyteller. Like, you maybe it was dark down there or something. And they just Yeah, because it was like, wait, or doppelganger. Exactly. I mean, there was just I something mean, wild. I don't know if they like really understood what was happening. And of course, it happened so fast. Yeah. Um. And then also, they, like, Yur was hiding, and not only did she think someone was next to her, she pushed something. She made contact oh with a solid force, uh, a solid being, and then it disappeared. And had a moment of, like, well, that was weird, but then also, like, I'm going to win this game. Because you're sick. Sure, sure. Oh, I mean, that that's that's just such a weird thing. Like, and okay, so let's say this is, is some entity. Like, just how weird that it never shows itself. But then when some kids are playing hide and go seek, uh, then it just decides, like, I want to play that game. Right. But, like, maybe, like, the spirit of some child or something. Right. And then how fucking sad is that? I know. That it just it just wants to play with the kids. I know. Oh, my God. Those stories are f- so weird. So weird and so uncomfortable. Yeah, it just freaked me out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know. Because, like, our basement, there are great hiding spots. Oh, my God. 
I'm thinking about being in one of the places down there. Like if I was playing and all of a sudden I think like, oh, shoot, somebody Monroe's already here uh-huh. or Kyra's here. And then I find out that they weren't there. That I'm going to lose my shit. When, like, we have a little like furnace, furnace room. room. Yeah, that's exactly. exactly what I was thinking, is being in that little furnace room in the basement, inside that room with the door shut, yep. feeling something in there, and then... Oh, better yet, if you're in there... <sighs> no, thanks. If you're first one in there, and then the door opens... Oh, like, my God, no. Like, something's yeah. going to join you, and you're just like, whatever, maybe you have your back to... I mean, you know how it is when you're playing hide-and-go-seek, no. you... Excuse me. You, like... You know, you smash yourself up against the wall so that even if somebody comes in, like, they don't see you right away, right? You're like, yep. I mean, I've got lots of spots that I would hide in that I'm like, okay, go ahead. Open it. You're not. You're still not going to see me. I'm a genius. <laughs> so if somebody else opened it and then you're like, what if, you, what if you just felt something come in, but you didn't really see the outline of Kyler or Monroe? Oh, my God. And, and somewhere down in the basement, there's some little entrance to, like, the crawl space underneath the house, I think. Where you could like open, can you, isn't there, isn't there something down there where you can open something and you could like get, you could get under the house? What? I think back behind the furnace. <laughs> no. Oh, sweetheart. Back behind the furnace, you can see our bathtub in our, that's how they yeah. access the, um, our bathtub. But maybe behind that. No, because even behind that, okay, so there's like, it, it's like you can see the frame, you can see the wood frame yeah. of the house and, you know, the spot that holds the tub. And then if you went to like the, if you were in there, which you couldn't, to the left, but it's the um, the clean out, it would take you to the laundry yeah. room. Uh, okay, no, so you, you, can, you can't get under a house. Not there. I don't know. There must be a way to get under a <sighs> house, but. Yeah, it's got to be a crawl space. Actually, no, because there's like no venting along the bottom of our house like that. Oh yeah, maybe there isn't. Yeah. Mm-mm. Huh. Oh well. Okay. Good. Maybe you're just thinking about our neighbors and how their house is sinking, mm-hmm. and they constantly have to like deal with it. But they're they have yeah. a different setup. Yeah. 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 Oh. Okay. Anyways. That was good. That was, that was good. Really, that was a really scary one. I know. It's, it's just enough. Mm-hmm. It's just enough. Okay. Well, you. Uh, we were talking about this earlier. Recently, we went to Cuba. And now this oh, yeah, time, we're yep, going to go yep, to Colombia. Yep. I just think it's like a sign the universe is like, you guys should take a trip to Latin America. I, I, I love going down to Latin America. I love the food. I love the people. I know the people the are great. I know. I know. And like so many people. All positives. Yes. And like so many people, when Narcos came out, I became fascinated with Pablo Escobar and that whole case. I mean, there mm-hmm. were podcasts about it. And just, I mean, such an interesting, interesting thing. And also. Yeah. Part of the reason I loved to watch Narcos is that the actor that played the DEA agent, um, Pedro Pesco. Pesco? Oh. Uh, I can't remember his name, but I know the actor. Yeah, he's... no, no, no. It's that. That's the actor. The agent is Agent Pena. Pena, yeah. So hot. <laughs> so happy to watch that I get show. It. Yeah, he was, he was in Game of Thrones too. I know he's a very handsome man. Meh. He just has a way about sure. him. Anyways, um, we're gonna go off to Medellin and hear about this really interesting story of a police officer during the time of Pablo Escobar's reign sees something happen and then that something seems to want to hang around like 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 uh like life needed to be more scary for a police officer down in Colombia at that time can you even no it was insane for a while there when you did, when you did Pablo Escobar yeah, on time suck right yeah when Escobar was uh at, at his height at the height of his power i mean he he ran shit yeah. You know, so many officers on the payroll, uh, the ones that weren't, uh, their lives were always uh, very much endangered. Mm-hmm. A lot of violence, a lot of murders for a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember like how that series ends, but I was thinking about like various other drug movies or TV shows. Like I loved Blow. Mm-hmm. It's such a great movie. Uh, Johnny Depp. Forget about Johnny Depp. Penelope Cruz. My God. She's, she's very attractive. She's 
she is a smoke show. <laughs> she is. She is. And so talented and mm-hmm. so smart. And mm-hmm. then I saw, like, actually just in, like, reading this, I was like, oh, yeah, what are, what other shows are kind of out right now? And um, what is the woman from Modern Family? Sophia. Oh, my gosh. Sophia. Uh, I cannot starts with a V. I cannot think of it right now. It's not going to pop into my head. But yes, she also, also a show. my yes, very, my very God. attractive. I'm like how? And mm-hmm. she is like in her 50s. I mean, just it's impossible. But like her and um, Selma Hayek, it's just like that ethnicity is just mm-hmm. like, I mean, I know that they're <laughs> like the most beautiful examples of it, but it's just like they age so beautifully. They have the most beautiful shapes. Mm-hmm. So jealous. But that said. So basically she, what, we're, what we're driving at is if we get an opportunity to sleep with any of those people, it's okay. High five. Okay. Either one of us. Right. Either okay, one great. of us. Yeah. Great, 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 great. Um, but Sophia, whatever. Yep. She is, uh, she took on some new TV show where she's playing like some Female drug lord. Oh, I'd like to see her in a non-comedic role, actually. Exactly. And Curious I, how she do. I bet it would be really good. Yep, I bet she's a great actress that way. Okay. I don't know what the show's called, but that was my uh, <laughs> that was my plug for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's dive into this story. Okay. Hey, Lindsay and Dan. I've been a huge fan of Scared to Death for about a year and recently just got into Time Suck. Thank you. And I have a story that I think might interest you guys. My family comes from Colombia. My grandfather was a policeman in the city of Medellin in the 1980s and early wow. 90s. He was around during the reign of drug lord Pablo Escobar. I'm sure you've heard of this man because here in America, I've seen people with shirts with this man's face on it like it's cool to praise him. Not many know that this man killed more than 4,000 people. My God. Of course, not all on his own to keep his business going. His reign impacted everyone's lives at the time. People did not want to go out because of gang wars in the streets, amongst all the other things. Anyways, back to my grandfather. While on duty during this time, he saw many awful things, including many, many, many dead bodies in the streets. He was a very religious man, and being religious, he never really believed in the supernatural because he always said God would never allow for that. On a balmy Saturday night, he was patrolling a block of Medellin. It was a portion of the city where the bars and clubs were. It was a pretty busy night, people everywhere, though many people opted to stay home around this time due to the gang violence. There was still plenty of people wanting to go out to the clubs. My grandfather was driving around a quiet part of a block when he was called to the Millionaires Club. This was a gang war situation that demanded his attention. These types of situations were fairly normal in those years, so he didn't give it much thought. He assumed it was probably just one group shooting guns into the street to assert dominance in that area once again. The bloodshed in the streets as a result of the drug lords out in the country was astonishing. When he arrived at the scene, he said it looked exactly like what he'd imagined when his DEA friends would tell him about the fights between the drug lords, a bloodbath. A typical club was a mid-sized room in the corner of a building complex with windows instead of walls along both sides that faced the street. Just turning the corner of the street, you could see everything and everyone inside the club. When my grandfather got to the scene, there were no more window walls in the club. The walls were covered in blood, and approximately 20 bodies were scattered across the floor. My God. He'd never seen anything like it. Later that night, when he finally returned home from his shift, he went to the bathroom to prepare for bed. He turned the light on, and he saw one of the victims standing right behind him. Her bloody clothes with bullet holes all over her body. Turning around frightened, he realized... It was just his wife, picking up some clothes in the bathroom. She asked him if everything was all right. He didn't want to say anything about what he had seen earlier that night because she had already lost some of her own family members due to the gang activity. It was a sensitive topic for her, so he brushed it off and said she simply startled him. 
He blamed the whole incident on having been awake for the past 24 hours. He just needed to rest. More and more drive-by shootings were happening around the city, with approximately 50 people dying each week. Medellin soon became a ghost town as people were too scared to set foot outside of their homes. My grandfather continued to see the bloody woman, but only in his home at his ranch. He never saw her when he was in the city on duty. After a month of not seeing the woman, he finally felt normal. Until one night when he returned home at 3 a.m. from working a late shift, he saw a light on upstairs. It was too late for his wife to still be up and no one else lived there. And then he saw her. The same bloody woman he saw that night in the bathroom, staring down at him as he got out of his car. He quickly ran for the front door, yelling for his wife to get out of the house. He opened the front door and he bolted upstairs, but saw there was no bloody woman anywhere to be found and no lights were on. His wife came out of the bedroom, confused and scared. Why was he yelling at such an hour of the night? He only said he thought he saw someone inside the house. He still had no explanation as to why he was seeing this woman, but he shrugged it off, hoping to settle his wife. Later, when he went to bed, he heard feet shuffling around in the bedroom and in the bathroom. Thinking it was him being paranoid from earlier, he attempted to sleep. Once he actually did get to sleep, he felt something heavy come over him. When he rolled over to investigate, he felt the sheets covered in something wet, thick, coating his hands. Using only the moonlight streaming in from the large window in their bedroom, he saw a very large, dark stain in the middle of their bed. And when, and then the smell of rust hit him. No, not rust. Blood. The smell of blood. Concerned for their safety, he shook his wife to wake her, but when he placed his hands on her body, she was cold and covered in blood herself. Jumping out of bed and running to her side, thinking someone had snuck into the house to harm them, he yelled out for help, hoping the neighboring ranch would hear them despite the distance. He picked up her freezing body and bolted for the front door, running towards the car. She seemed lighter than usual. Could it be that he was now carrying her lifeless body? Was it the adrenaline rush from his fight-or-flight response? He had no time to figure this out. Right now, he simply needed to get her to a hospital. Looking down at her limp body, he noticed many dark spots all over her body. Bullet holes. He brushed her hair back from her face to see if there was any sign of life. Maybe she was somehow still alive. When he moved her wet, blood-soaked hair back, he saw two huge white eyeballs staring back at him. This wasn't his wife. This was the same woman he saw at the massacre scene in his bathroom and in the upstairs of their house. He dropped the woman, terrified, yelling for Maria, his wife. Where could she be? He ran back into the house, straight to the bedroom, and as he flung the door open with a loud bang, he saw a figure shoot upright in bed. He flipped on the light and found Maria. A frightened look on her face, yelling at him. What the fuck are you doing running around the house yelling for help at this time of night? With a confused face, he asked her if she was hurt. No, I'm not hurt. Why would I be hurt? And why are you so sweaty? He looked down to see that he was drenched in sweat. No blood anywhere. He flashed on the bed being covered in blood. He pulled the sheet back to look. He pulled the sheets back to look. No blood. Literally no blood anywhere. The sun was beginning to rise. Good. There was no way he was going to be able to go back to sleep. After showering to clear his mind and his body, my grandfather sat down to confess to his wife about what he had been seeing in the house. He explained to her about the woman he'd been seeing, explaining how she is covered in bullet holes and blood. My grandmother, wide-eyed and pale-faced, covering her mouth with her hands, in a terrifyingly shaking voice responded, You see her too? Oh my God. That's all my grandfather would ever tell me, though I know there is more to the story. He showed me a newspaper article about the club massacre that night after he first saw the woman. 
And even with the camera quality being very bad at the time and the aging of the newspaper, the scene was unbelievably very vivid. You can see all the back walls were covered in dark spots and splatters of blood and lots of bodies on the ground. I used to think it was all bullshit, just him trying to scare me. But during one summer, when I was visiting my grandmother in Colombia, my grandmother sat me down for a talk. She said she wanted to tell me about an event that happened long before my own mother was even born. She said that she and my grandfather had agreed to never tell me, but she thought I was finally old enough now and needed to get it out. I asked her if it was about the bloody woman, and she stared at me with wide eyes. That's wild. That thing of like, you see her too? Uh-huh. Ooh, because I mean, I mean, you know, like like the big story when he's carrying her out and everything, I'm just thinking like, okay, vivid dream, lucid, lucid dream. Right, right. And and maybe like in a nightmare, sense, honestly, night, just a yeah, nightmare, nightmare reenactment mm-hmm, of night terror. Exactly. And it probably was, but also like he's also seen her not in his dreams uh-huh. and she is too and he never told her about her. That's that's crazy. Those were really both those stories were really good. Some really great stories. Yeah, I I loved this story. Just the 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 backstory on it yeah. of of, you know, Escobar and being a police officer at that time. I mean, of course you would have nightmares. Yeah, like all PTSD. That. Yes, my all that. God, what you're seeing and dealing with. Yeah, all the death, all the crime, the the fear that if you're not a police officer on Escobar's payroll, like there's so much stress and anxiety around the situation that it would be completely acceptable, understandable that you would be having night terrors, yeah. uh, even sleep paralysis around it. I would have believed, but mm-hmm. like you said, at the end when she's like, "Oh my God, you too." Yeah, that's enough to be like. Okay, this thing, this attached, you know, and this person died, you know, in a horrible, horrific way. I, my bet would be that the person who died, this woman, she probably wasn't involved in the drugs at all. She probably was just one of the few people who was like, I'm still going to go out. I'm going to live my Mm -hmm. life. I don't want to live in fear forever. And she's at a club dancing and unbeknownst to her. Yep. I mean, she's probably suspicious that there's mm-hmm. drug activity going on around her, but this is the night that one rival gang decides they're going to fucking terrorize another rival gang, and she just happened to be caught in the crossfire. So there to was, me, yeah. it's like she's just trying to find peace where she can't find peace. Yeah, there were so many innocent bystanders with all that stuff. I mean, it was it was like, it was war. War. It was like, you know, like the, the cartel, you know, like that, the Medellin cartel. Um, I mean, they had an army, mm-hmm. you know, and, and then the, the police, you know, had to be very militarized to fight that army. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, it was like living in a a war zone, truly. Mm-hmm. Yee. So sad. Mm-hmm. So sad. And all for what? To pump drugs out and to be so rich? Right. Well, we can get into a whole other discussion about like if drugs are legalized. Oh, I know. It wouldn't be quite the same situation. I know. You and I have are, are very much in agreement on that, which is not. <laughs> Anyways. Yeah. That's a whole other podcast in yeah. itself. Maybe we can talk about that sometime on our uh, soon to be. Uh, actualized casserole podcast. <laughs> I just love that after that episode of talking about casseroles, I've gotten so many emails yeah. that are like, okay, but but really. Now you say soon to be, but we have not. No, I'm no, joking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's like, I just think it's so funny. People are like, also, like if you could drop some casserole recipes and then, like, I love it. I love it, love it, love I it. Do love, I do love a casserole. I do love oh, a casserole. Man. Leftovers. I know, I know. Casserole our, leftovers are the best. Our kids are not very into leftovers. No, they're not. They're spoiled. Well, it's because I love to cook a fresh meal every day. Yeah. I mean, they'll eat them. It's not like they are, because there are some people who literally won't eat leftovers. I love leftovers. I, and I love, love casserole. Here's what I love. I'm just so Tell lazy. me everything. What I love about a casserole is that you just need one scooper. You don't have to like store it in different dishes. Uh-huh. You get your veggies, you get your meat, you get all of your things in just one meal. Because I'm not, some people don't like their different kinds of food to touch. Mm-hmm. I like to throw it all together. So I'll, I'll turn a regular meal essentially into a casserole mm-hmm. on my plate. 
I like the the mixing of mm-hmm. the flavors. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just like it's it's so efficient. It is so efficient. But what's interesting is that you'll mock me yeah. for needing to have the right ratio of things to have a perfect bite to have all the flavors together. Yeah. But you do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Just you're, yeah. you're, you do it in a less sophisticated way. Fair. I'll agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now here's like a tiny, uh, not very sad, but kind of sad announcement. There will be no Annabelle shout outs and no spoopy shout outs this week because I am a moron. And when I lay out the shout outs for the year, I use an Excel spreadsheet and I, you know, I list out the episodes 127, 128, 129. And then obviously they go one week at a time, you know, the 7th, the 14th, the mm. 21st. I don't know what in the world I was doing or how many drinks I had had the night I was doing this data entry, but I somehow skipped an entire week, which happened to be this week. Yeah. And then to like cut and paste and change things, I had such a deep fear that I would mess up someone's birthday shout out right. and I would put it on this week instead of next week. And then the whole like, there's a certain date at which I will announce like, okay, if you signed up to be an Annabelle by this date, now everybody should be caught up. And if yeah. you didn't hear your name, let me know that kind of thing. And if I messed with that, if I cut and paste those, then that's a lot of order. Yeah. So I just decided for my own sanity. And because you guys are so great, I knew you would understand no shout outs this week. Just yeah. boop, zero. So yes, we'll just, we're just going to, we're just going to wrap it up. But we could just talk about casseroles. <laughs> we, we, yeah. uh, so that is our show. Uh, thanks for continuing to send in your personal tales of terror. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're always good, but those were especially scary today. Uh, my story at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. You can email us for everything else. Info at scaredtodeathpodcast.com. Thanks to Logan Keith and Liz Hernandez for the work on social media. And to Logan again for running badmagicmerch.com. Thanks to Joe Paisley for producing and directing today. Uh, Zach Cohen for custom soundbed creation. Heather Rylander for organizing the My Story emails. And to book editor Drew Atana for helping format the listener stories each week. And thanks to producer Olivia Lee for finding my first story today. Producer Sophie Evans for finding the second. And enjoy your nightmares, creeps, and peepers. Hope you were scared to death. Bye. If spirits threaten me in this place, fight water by water and fire by fire. Banish their souls into nothingness and remove their powers until the last trace. Let these evil beings flee through time and space. Evil may pass through, but hath no home here within scared to death. Bad Magic Productions. 